0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charan, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest is David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic and author most recently of Trumpocalypse.
1: Um,
0: as we are recording this, we've just learned that uh, at the uh, Kabul airport, there's been a suicide attack and um, some number of Americans were killed. We're hearing different numbers, possibly four. Uh, there may be more um, and more wounded um, we have also heard that there are something like 1,500 Americans that still need evacuation um, and um, unknown numbers of uh, Afghan allies, those who put their lives on the line to help American troops, uh, translators, and others uh, who are still awaiting uh, rescue. Um So, as of this moment, uh, the Biden administration says that it is standing by its August 31st deadline. So, David Frum, I will go to you first. Um, Is there no alternative to this August 31st deadline?
2: Um, There is perhaps an alternative now. Um, President Biden has said that um, the United States would comply with the deadline so long as the Taliban upheld um, its indirect security guarantees, Um, whoever is responsible for this terrible, um, atrocious suicide attack. uh, You could say that that, that the conditions have changed and he could extend, Biden could extend the deadline a little bit for practical reasons. Um, But Biden's in a situation here that has been made for a long time. um, And uh, the stark grammar of the situation is always that he faced at the beginning of 2021, the same choice that President Obama faced in 2009, which is either Accelerate withdrawal or make a surge to secure, uh, create security inside Afghanistan. Obama chose the surge. Biden chose the opposite.
0: Right, um, and uh, uh, Damon, I'm going to go to you next. Um, you and I uh, publicly disagreed about this, um, but so why don't you lay out your view that uh, that this is the right decision and that uh, we. It was a misconceived um, thing to stay, uh, to remain in Afghanistan.
3: Well, I mean, this is, we can, let's, I I like the way you set it up. We can set aside for now, at least, the question of uh, to what extent the Biden administration deserves blame for the execution of the withdrawal. And uh, I'll move to the question as you posed it, which is, is it a good idea to get out uh, as a kind of principle or a goal of policy? And I do think it is. And this is one of these cases where what we've seen since the withdrawal started to be uh, started to be uh, implemented, where the results have vindicated that choice. The fact is that. We have been in Afghanistan for 20 years. We had the surge over a decade ago where many Americans were being killed, then into a period where things calmed down quite a bit, especially on the American side uh, over the past couple of years since the Trump administration was negotiating with the Taliban for an American withdrawal. But the amazing thing is that after all of this time, the... The Afghan government and the military forces that we worked to prop up to train to give weapons uh, and an ability to defend the Afghan people simply crumbled in a matter of weeks in the face of a Taliban offensive which shows that we have accomplished remarkably little in all of that time. Now, this, my view assumes, I'm going to put all my cards on the table, it assumes that our goal should not be to permanently have a military presence in Afghanistan to hold the country together, which is, of course, different than keeping a modest military force in a country as we have in Germany, South Korea, and Japan for many decades since the uh, end of the second world war and the korean conflict um, in the 50s this is having american soldiers in in a, essentially a low boil and sometimes high boil civil war trying to tamp it down with Americans acting as a tripwire there to keep it from getting totally out of control. And when it starts to spiral, we have to send more troops to tamp it down some more, and that we do this endlessly with no strategy for getting out. I don't think that that makes any rational sense. And so, therefore, we should be trying to get out, given that we have not succeeded in Creating an independent Afghanistan that can hold itself together on its own, and again, how things have unfolded over the last month, I think vindicates that in, that that insight that. This did not work, and nothing is going to make it work no matter how long we stay, and that isn't a situation I think America should be in in the world. We have other problems and concerns that should be taking priority, and my last point would be if you look at how this has unfolded once again, you can see that the national security establishment – understands that other things are a higher priority than this, where we are as a function of the fact that we've cared enough to not want to get out because we knew it could blow up in our face and didn't want that to happen, but not so much that, you know, this actually takes priority over our concerns with China, with Pakistan, with Iran, all of those other countries, and with Russia as well. All of those countries that surround, many of which border Afghanistan, we have relationships that are very complicated with, and at every stage we always tend to prioritize those concerns, which I agree with. We should be doing that. But the end result is that uh, Afghanistan just ends up being a can that we kick down the road interminably, and we have done for the last two decades.
0: Uh, Bill Galston, a while back uh, on a different uh podcast we spoke about uh about the u.s posture in the world and um and you said that you were for permanent truces um you know arguably um you know david says we would have necessarily been involved in a civil war in afghanistan but you know since 2015 um there have only been 96 uh u.s deaths uh, in afghanistan and only 66 of those were killed in action um in, in 2017, um, four times as many servicemen died in accidents as in combat. So we are not talking here about a forever war. We are talking about a, a military commitment that does, yes, involve uh, tragic loss, but not at a huge scale when you compare the the, um, the price of, uh, of other uh, deployments. We, um, we currently have about 35,000 Americans in Germany, 28,000 in South Korea, 54,000 in Japan. And uh, it it seems, doesn't it seem, and you can respond however you like, but doesn't it seem that um, some price in lives and money was worth it to prevent Afghanistan from becoming um, the headquarters for every bloody-minded jihadist in the world, which it now will be?
1: (laughs) Asked and answered, counselor. You've neatly, <laughs> you've neatly played both sides of the net. Uh, I concluded quite a while ago that we had two options in Afghanistan, not losing and losing. There was no option for victory, at least within sight, and perhaps not even not even conceivable uh, but there was a sure way to lose and that was by pulling out our residual force uh, like you uh, I paid attention to the uh, you know to the fatality statistics uh, I am assured by a former four-star Marine General, who once was in charge of the effort in Afghanistan, uh, that in the 12 months preceding the Trump administration's surrender agreement with the Taliban, we had no combat deaths whatsoever. Uh, I believe that the American interest would have been better served by a clean decision to retain a force of between 2,500 and 3,500 Americans to supplement the efforts of the Afghan fighting forces whose leaders have responded with justified indignation to the administration's suggestion uh, that the Afghan army was a bunch of cowards and deserters who refused to fight for their country. So, you know, know, Damon and I have a clear disagreement on on this point. Uh, I think the national interest would have been better served uh, if Donald Trump had never negotiated that agreement with the Taliban uh, and if uh, President Biden had chosen not to honor it. Uh, there There would have been some bumpy patches, but I think we could have sustained it. All of this depends on an American president. Uh, who was willing to look the American people in the eye and do what none of the past four presidents have been willing to do, and that is tell them uh, that the course that we're on represents a moderate but open-ended commitment to Afghanistan.
3: Um, Mona, can I just, can I ask Bill a quick follow-up to that? Sure, sure. Bill, do you just discount the people like uh, Ivo Adalder and many others who have said, that the very low rates of american casualties in recent years were a function of the negotiation with the taliban and that that was going to come to an end if we were nagged on the deal um, that that we would have needed a surge quite a bit more than 3,500 troops to respond to a severe escalation on their side which we have actually seen over the last couple of months and not been not it has not prompted an American response because we're trying to get out. But if we were trying to stay, and the Taliban had used this summer to push this kind of escalation across the country, we couldn't have just kept them at that level, the American troop level. But do you do you think that isn't
1: true? I think that I think that arguably is not true, and let me tell you why. I mean, I've known Evo for a long time, you know. He's he's a foreign policy expert and a very able president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. I respect his opinion. On this one, I disagree with him. Uh, and let me tell you why. Uh, well before the uh, uh, the negotiations with the Taliban under the previous administration, we had decided to transition out of— participation in the ground war, particularly in remote places. And we were saying to the Afghan army, in effect, you do the fighting on land, we will provide the air support. And that was a critical proviso because as Afghan military leaders, including uh, General Sami Sadat uh, in, a, in a piece, I believe, in today's New York Times We taught the Taliban forces to fight along American lines, that is, using strategies that relied on air support. And then we pulled the plug on the air support, uh, which I believe was a fatal mistake. Bottom line, uh, if we had, as we had begun to do, uh, confined our military efforts to air support, I believe that American casualties would have been minimal to non-existent and continuing the pattern of many more deaths from accidents than from actual combat.
0: Um, Linda, let me bring you in here. Um, I, I will say this on behalf of um, Damon's point, and that is that um, that Trump reduced the number of American forces radically down to uh, 2,500, I think. And um, I I wouldn't. Out that uh, had Biden decided to change that policy and to and to to move in a different direction, that he would have had to surge some number of troops. It might not have been more, though, than the six thousand that he wound up having to send anyway, just to help us get out of there.
4: Correct, correct. And and by the way, that piece which I thought was uh, heartrending and excellent uh, by General Sadat was in yesterday's New York Times. It is well worth reading. Uh, and he describes exactly what Bill has suggested, that it was Afghans on the ground that were taking the casualties, and we were providing intelligence, logistical, and air support. And unfortunately, even before uh, last week, when we literally um, abandoned, uh, started abandoning Afghanistan, we had Uh, stopped providing the same level of support. We were uh, not providing parts uh, for some of the weapons uh, that we had provided. We were doing things uh, knowing that we were leaving and knowing that we probably couldn't take some of our stuff with us, and so we didn't want to leave it uh, as functional. um, And and even despite that, the Taliban, you know, are parading around uh, with all of the weapons that we left behind. But let me say this. We have fought in many places and left troops behind for decades. We still have troops in Japan. We have troops in Germany. Uh, we obviously have a huge force uh, in South Korea. Now, not, those troops are not necessarily there because we are expecting the Germans to suddenly uh, go Nazi on us or Japan, you know, to uh, have a, uh, an emperor who's going to declare war Uh, or even necessarily, um, although probably more so, uh, in in South Korea because of the fear of a North Korean invasion. Part of the reason we are in these places is they provide us strategic outposts. And how anyone could say that there is no strategic interest in Afghanistan, a country that is bordered by many of... um, you know, uh, our enemies and some of our so-called friends who've been um, helping develop uh, the Taliban for years, uh, we are going to lose the ability on the ground to be able to monitor what is happening within Afghanistan. It will, in fact, become a magnet once again for every uh, al-Qaeda type, ISIS type, uh, anti-American group uh, to flood there. And the Taliban itself cannot be trusted. And oh, by the way, you know, uh, you you mentioned, Damon, that um, we could expect more from uh, the Taliban in terms of resistance if we had not continued uh, along Trump's path. Well, one of the wonderful things Trump did uh, in that agreement is let out of prison 5,000 of the most vicious uh, fighters the Taliban had, some of whom... Uh, are now assuming positions within the Taliban government. So this was an unmitigated disaster, as far as I'm concerned. I think it shows um, unseriousness on the part of President Biden. Uh, I think that whatever happens, uh, you know, after today, um, yes, we will have gotten out at least 80,000 people. uh, But this uh, is a very, very uh, black day for America.
2: Um, David, Rona, from, I, I, will, um, I, I will say the thing that, that Linda says no one will say, um, which oh, is go ahead. Which is not only is there no strategic interest in Afghanistan, but actually Afghanistan always was a very considerable counter-strategic interest. And okay. you have—and you have to look, measure the costs of this war, not just in terms of American lives, but but in the following way: um, to maintain an American army in the field takes many hundreds of thousands of tons of supplies a month. And even to maintain an American air force in the field takes low hundreds of thousands of tons of supplies per month, fuel, things like that. Um, You can only get those supplies into Afghanistan basically in one of two ways. Um, Either you unload them by sea in Pakistan and truck them north, or you unload them at Vladivostok or a European port, move them over the Russian railway network. um, And then they're then through the Central Asian republics or across the Caspian into Afghanistan. In other words, If you're going to fight a war in Afghanistan, you put a loaded revolver into the head of either the Russians or the Pakistanis. From uh, the first war uh, effort in Afghanistan in late 2001 until um, uh, the early part of the last decade, uh, the United States at least was able to trade off one against the other. um, The cheaper way is to move things through Pakistan, the more expensive way was through Russia, but the United States did a little of both, and that kept either from being too demanding. But after the invasion of Crimea, um, the United States properly put sanctions on Russia, and Russia retaliated by ending the ability to use the Russian railway network to supply, supply Afghanistan. So the price of being in Afghanistan is to give Pakistan a veto over American policy, and that we've been paying that price now for nearly a decade. And it means that, that and it means that we were always doomed to fail because our we are we were logistically dependent on the people we were fighting. And that was obviously bound to end in, in failure. Um, I don't know. Had I been at the table to say what, if you are the new Biden administration confronting all the inheritance of the past, what do you do? Do you withdraw entirely? But what, what I do know is, so long as you're there, your fingers in a trap, um, and you it, and you lose the ability to do things like hold Pakistan to account for its sponsorship of terrorist attacks on India. You lose your ability to deal with the global jihadi network because so much that jihadi network is paid for and funneled through pakistan once out and it's 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 a, from this sentimental president this was an amazingly cold-blooded decision once out the united states reacquires considerable freedom of action against both russia and pakistan that it did not have before and so you can uh see this not as an isolationist move, and not as a surrender, but as an attempt to disencumber yourself of, of a trap in order to reacquire freedom of action to move against people who are more dangerous.
0: Okay, let, let me ask you this. Um, uh, President Biden has said repeatedly that um, we don't really need troops on the ground, that we can um, do uh, reconnaissance and o- keep saying over the horizon methods of uh, of tracking uh, terrorist activity and so forth. Um, even with people on the ground, we obviously badly misjudged the situation vis-a-vis the Taliban's strength and so on. Why should we think that when we're hundreds or thousands of miles away, relying just on satellites and drones and whatnot, Uh, that we can do better?
2: Um, Well, that's to me. I think what he's thinking of is is twofold. First, the the drone revolution, the drones did not really functionally exist in the early 2000s, and they have been very, very effective against terrorist targets in all kinds of places. I think he's thinking also about the fact that now that the Taliban is again a state, that means they've acquired ownership of assets that they want to protect and that you can retaliate against. I think there's finally something else, which is... um, people talk about Afghanistan as a haven for terrorists as if that's the only place in the world where terrorists could go. But actually, terrorists can go all kinds of places. Um, and yeah, you, you can deny them Afghanistan at great cost, um, but that they, they use Yemen. Um, and if you think about places that you would use, if you were a terrorist and you were trying to have a base, Afghanistan is about the worst place you could be. It's got the worst airline connections with the rest of the world. It's got the most primitive, it's got very primitive uh, communications technologies. I mean, you'd rather... You'd rather be in Doha um, and and indeed terrorists are in places like that. So I think what and I think what Biden is also saying, and it's hard for president to say this bluntly. I'm not guaranteeing anybody, he might say, zero terrorism. I'm just saying that that we can hold it down to non-existential levels. We can deny them weapons of mass destruction. We can retaliate against their state sponsors. And we can—and even more, once out of Afghanistan, we can retaliate against state sponsors in Pakistan, as well as in Afghanistan, which we couldn't do before.
0: Okay. Does anybody want to respond to David before we turn to the matter of refugees? I would just say, uh, bravo.
3: <laughs> I like that quite a lot. I mean, David really, I think, elaborated and put more detail on the table. I, I mean, the, the point that I was trying to make earlier about being hemmed in because of our position in Afghanistan vis-a-vis Russia and Pakistan and China. Uh, really, uh, he, he elaborated on that, having to do with uh, getting material into the theater over, uh, over land from those various uh, locations and, and the way it tied our hands in dealing with other countries and bigger problems. So I, I very much agree.
1: Well, I remain to be persuaded that American policy in dealing with Pakistan will be any more effective in the next 10 years than it has been in the past 10 years. Uh, and the Pac- I have always believed uh, that the Pakistanis see what's going on in Afghanistan entirely through the prism of their ongoing competition uh, and sometimes out where, out- outright military confrontations with India. Uh, I do not expect that to change. And I do not expect that our ability to influence their behavior is going to be enhanced in any way. I would like to be proved wrong, uh, but I'll believe it when I see it.
4: Well, I I will add that I hope for the sake of the country that uh, David is correct. Uh, But I also am a skeptic and Pakistan, uh, I, I would just be utterly floored if we see any stronger actions against Pakistan than we have seen uh, over the last 20 years. And Pakistan will continue to be a problem for us. Uh, And unfortunately, they have nuclear arms.
1: And they like to proliferate them.
4: And they do. They like to sell their technologies to the highest bidder.
0: All right. Um, There has been a bit of a debate broken out on on the right uh, about, accepting Afghan refugees. Um, this is, it turns out that this is a wildly popular, broadly popular, uh, position with the American public at large, uh, including Republicans, uh, who by large majorities, um, say that we should accept, uh, and welcome, uh, any Afghans who worked with the United States and, uh, are, are needing asylum. Um, and, um, and, and yet, I mean, uh, and it, by the way, no, that let me just say this also includes a number of leading Republicans. Uh, Senator Ben Sass was very forthright about this. He said, um, you know, anyone who put his life on the line to serve with America is welcome in my neighborhood. Um, You had Republican governors, Brian Kemp, Spencer Cox, Charlie Baker, Larry Hogan, Phil Scott, Kevin Stitt, Henry McMaster, all saying they would welcome Afghan refugees. And then on the other side, you have J.D. Vance, candidate for senator in Ohio, Tucker Carlson and Kevin McCarthy, all chiming in on the other side and echoing Donald Trump's uh, false statements that – that uh, we have, you know, that there are 5,000 terrorists that have already escaped Afghanistan and are headed for the United States. So, Linda, let's start with you on this one.
4: Well, um, I uh, believe so much in this. Um, I would very much welcome uh, to take in some Afghans, as I did uh, take in Vietnamese when the Vietnamese uh, boat lift uh, occurred. You mean literally into your home? Yeah. Literally yeah. take them into my home. I Absolutely. My, my sons and I were talking this weekend um, about uh, providing um, a home for um, for an Afghan family. Uh, I believe in this very, very strongly. Uh, however, um, you know, my, my husband also headed up under the first um, President Bush's administration, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Uh, And I will tell you that we are extraordinarily successful uh, with refugees, in part because unlike immigrants who don't get much help from the government, we actually have a functioning process that provides immediate assistance, housing, uh, clothing, uh, help finding a job, uh, English language training uh, if it's needed for people who are Uh, brought through the normal refugee program. So there is um, a process that helps people uh, assimilate. And we're talking about, in most cases, these are people who have helped the United States uh, and their families. And at least for those who directly help the United States, uh, they all speak English. Most most of them were, in fact, interpreters uh, for our forces and our contractors. Um, So they're being able to ease into... uh, and to American life, I think will be enhanced by that. And we also happen to be facing right now what's, what we rarely talk about, and that is a severe labor shortage, particularly in the kinds of jobs that some of these people may be willing to do. So I think it's a good thing. I think it is disgraceful um, that you have voices on the right like Laura Ingraham and, and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity uh, talking about invaders uh, these people uh, are not invaders. In fact, we invaded their country, uh, and they helped us uh, overturn uh, the Taliban. And now we owe them, I think, the chance to be able to start new lives. And I am very confident that they will be contributing members of our society.
0: Bill, some uh, some people have expressed concern that there might be um – A huge refugee surge out of Afghanistan, not just among those coming to the United States, but also attempting to enter Europe, and that this might ignite a backlash, a populist backlash um, on the right in Europe along the lines of the Viktor Orban's of the world. What uh, What do you think about that?
1: Well, we'll see whether the Europeans have learned anything from the 2015 fiasco. I certainly hope they have uh but let me let me go back learned? to the question well i hope i i hope they've learned uh that they're that they're gonna have to they're gonna have to work together uh to modulate the flow and to you know and to to distribute it in a way that minimizes the chances of a populist backlash uh they are going to have to get their act together uh But let me go back to the previous question. Uh, My blood doesn't boil very often. But when Donald Trump repurposed his rhetoric about Mexico not sending their best people to us, you can count on that. In the case of the Afghans, he got it absolutely backwards. (laughs) They are sending their best people to us. Uh, the people who are not only skilled, uh, but have demonstrated their commitment uh, to the cause that we shared. Uh, And I predict that they will be outstanding American citizens. Uh, We took in in the immediate aftermath of, uh, of the Saigon evacuation, 130,000 Vietnamese, we, e- we eventually ended up taking in more than a million. How many Americans today would say that that was a bad thing for the country? Uh, and when Kevin McCarthy uh, backed Trump up on this point, my respect for him, you know, which has gone from 40 to 10... Uh, in the past few months has suffered a further decline to a point that is hard to distinguish from zero. You know, and there was a point, there was a time at which I respected J.D. Vance. That time is over. Uh, He should have stayed, he should have stayed with the positions he was espousing five years ago. Would have been better for him, better for the state of his soul better for the state of Ohio and better for the country. Uh, so I think, I think this is a moment of real testing for the populist right in the Republican Party. And if they, ana- if they allow nativist passions to dominate not only humanity but common sense, uh, then they are simply irretrievable. You know, and represent an alien force in a liberal democracy that needs to be cabined as far as possible and eventually reduced to zero through the forces of natural attrition.
0: Uh, Damon, um, th- some, some Trump enthusiasts like Rich Lowry uh, and Mike Pompeo Uh, are saying that uh, if Trump were still president, this would all have been handled beautifully. Trump would have thundered and threatened the Taliban and they would have backed right down and everything would have gone great.
3: Yeah, sure. (laughs) Trump who invited the Taliban to Camp David for a chat. Yeah, sure. Of course he would have. Yeah, Trump would have blustered and swaggered and said some obnoxious things about maybe fire and fury raining down on people's heads. And then a minute later, some Taliban spokesman would have, uh, you know, flattered him with some idiocy or other. And he would have said, oh, wonderful, my good friend, come on over. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. that that's just ridiculous. And, you know, Rich Lowry, is 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 not a dumb guy, but like when I see him saying things like that, I, I, I want to pull him inside and say, come on, nothing in your career is worth saying something this ridiculous. You know this isn't true. Now you can you can take the position as you know I am even sometimes inclined to do and say, you know, if Trump had reasons for supporting withdrawal from Afghanistan. Maybe he didn't uh, pursue it uh, in the smartest way possible, but that's a defensible position. But to then say he would have executed it better than what we've seen, I think, is just risable. It just makes no sense and is totally incongruent with what all of us experienced of the Trump administration. I mean, the guy didn't have a lot of political strengths, but certainly he did not have a strength in kind of being a great uh, organizer and manager. Uh, And this is something that, uh, you know, one reason why things haven't gone very well, uh, it hasn't gone very smoothly for Joe Biden and Biden is that a lot of the National Security Establishment, I think thought this would not end up happening. I think a lot of people were assuming, oh, Biden's not actually going to withdraw. And then even when he announced in the spring that it would go through, I still think a lot of people thought, wait a minute, this isn't really going to happen, is it? And kept delaying coming up with plans and implementing them. And it's now blown up in our faces because Uh, On top of the fact that actually we are withdrawing, of course, as we talked about already, the Afghan government and the military collapsed over the last month or so, leaving us to scramble for the exits, which is not what anybody had in mind. The idea that this would have unfolded in a better way with Donald Trump in charge tweeting some things and doing absolutely nothing to oversee planning is, is as I said, risable and really probably not worth talking about much beyond uh, the, the time we've devoted to it already. It's ridiculous.
0: David, um, some repressive countries uh, don't uh, stand in the way of people attempting to leave on the grounds that those who are heading for the exits would be a problem for them if they stayed home and uh, it's all the better if they if they go. Um, and so you know I do wonder a little bit about why the Taliban isn't just throwing open the airport completely and and uh, you know giving safe passage to anybody who does who does want to leave but uh, they're they're obviously not doing that although, to some degree, I, one senses from the, the the signals coming out of the administration, there is some amount of cooperation that they have yeah. offered. Um, but um, but my question is what. What is our leverage at this moment? I mean, one hears that the Taliban is absolutely desperate for cash. As somebody already pointed out, it might have been Bill or Damon. Uh, the, when they were in control of the country 20 years ago, Kabul was a much smaller city. The, the, the economy was much uh, more limited. Um, they are they're really going to need the money. Could that be some leverage that we still have over them?
2: The population of Afghanistan has almost doubled in the two decades or so the United States was present. It's now a country of almost 40 million people. Um, and it has no economic activity of, of, of any kind, really. Um, uh, it, uh, I remember a decade visiting Afghanistan. I visited a few, a few times a decade ago, and I think there was so, I was on a visit and I was talked to uh, an international aid monitor who said her ambition was if she could raise and raise Afghanistan up to the level where it began to compete with Bangladesh, she would consider herself very, very successful. Now, since then, Bangladesh has had an economic boom and is now even farther yes. out, of, <laughs> out, of, out of reach than ever. Um, uh, I think we need to think about what do we mean when we say the Taliban? Um, that The Taliban, in its fight against the United States, began financing itself by um, offering protection to drug traffickers. What very often happens in these situations, you saw something similar happen in Colombia, to a certain degree it happened with the IRA, is you, a group can start off as a terrorist movement with a side interest in drugs. But pretty quickly, the people with the drugs have all the money and, all, and the best of the guns, and soon it is a drug syndicate with a side, indication, with a side interest in terrorism. Um, the, t- the Taliban now is a syndicate of criminal gangs in a country that um, you can't get to cohere. Um, it's ethnically divided. It's geographically divided. It's it's so difficult to get from point A to point B in uh, in, in that country. Um, even even uh, and they're going to of course not have the ability to do so uh, by air because they're not going to be able to pay for fuel, even for the planes that we leave behind. Um, so uh, the the United States and the world is going to have a lot of leverage. I, I insist it's going to have leverage upon Pakistan, which will uh, which will have a form of leverage uh, over the Afghans. Um, I want to say something about the question you raised earlier about refugees. There is a kernel of truth for once um, in what some of the hard right people are saying about this, which is there has been significant outflows of population from Afghanistan, especially to Europe over the past six, seven years, especially from 2015. And that migration has been quite problematic from the point of view of the receiving countries, um, that the Afghans arrive with fairly low skill levels um, with uh, they get into trouble of various kinds, and they have very negative attitudes toward Western women. And so many European governments have had, have had bad experiences. Um, but understand who those people were. Those are not the people we're talking about rescuing. Those are basically the second and third son of a, of a village landowner, because it costs a bit of money to get from Afghanistan to Europe. And the first son does one thing. The second does, son does third thing. And the and, and the third son, the, the the clan makes an investment in getting that person to Europe. And he arrives without a lot of skills and maybe some um, a, a shock between the expectations because back home his family had some importance. That's why he was able to travel. And in Europe he's at the bottom of the status hierarchy. The people who we're talking about airlifting now are, um, as you've all said, I mean, the best of the best. Uh, the people who speak English. Uh, the people who. Um, have various kinds of significant skills, who, ha- who, who have a functioning attitude uh, to the modern world, who are um, modern women or who have modern women in their families. Um, and I think one more thing, not just, this is not just a humanitarian act. One form of pressure the United States has upon uh, the Taliban is precisely attracting its best people. That the Taliban, yeah, they're carrying lots of revenge, and they have, um, one of the reasons they want to stop people from leaving is because they just want to settle scores in a primitive way. It's also true that the United States could leave them without a doctor in the country, without a person in the country who knows how to operate a computer, without any kind of functioning electrical or telephone system, even above the levels they have now. Everything you need to make Afghanistan or the city of Kabul, which is now a big city, anything like modern, the United States can take that away simply by giving people visas and seats on airplanes. And that is also a form of pressure that we should keep in mind the United States will have over the future. And um, it will... The Taliban or whoever governs Afghanistan or whatever consortium of different interest groups, including some criminals, when they begin to say, you know, we may want to invite those electrical engineers back, they're going to have to think, how do we guarantee their safety and how do we guarantee some degree of freedom and decency for the women and their families?
0: All right. Uh, really, really meaty discussion. Um, let's uh, pay some attention right now to um, – the budget bill and the infrastructure package. There was a pitched battle that went on for most of the past week uh, between the moderates and the progressives in the Democratic Party. Uh, There was a great meeting and and nancy pelosi apparently gave a fig leaf uh to the moderates uh, promising them uh, a standalone vote uh by september 26th and uh, and and a really complicated business about deeming the budget passed and they don't actually have to vote on it whatever um all sort of feels very kabuki-ish um but um but let's get to the to the substance it, I, i'm wondering and i'm genuinely befuddled by this Damon I'll start with you. Um, they went to a lot of trouble here to um, to pass this this reconciliation budget which um, both uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin have said they're against what gives? I frankly don't know. I mean whenever we whenever
3: <laughs> we get into machinations of Congress and especially in in the in the early Biden administration with with this two-track process I'm inclined to just want to point to Bill and say explain this because I <laughs> I don't understand there are so many kind of internal debates and negotiations on multiple levels going on that i sort of want to throw up my hands and say i guess we'll just see by the end because so far things keep happening and bills keep advancing in their various stages on these various tracks and so far things have not been scuttled but i am sort of at a loss from the outside to explain to anybody exactly how this is happening, what is happening, uh, what the various incentive structures are. Like if you try to come up with a game theory formula to explain what's going on, it would end up looking like eight level calculus or something. I I just don't understand. Um, The fact is it's been the dynamic from the beginning that you have the moderates, you have the progressives, you have the two bills. On one of the bills, Republicans are, you know, going along and and have have contributed to it and are in favor of passing it. The other one, the Republicans won't do anything to contribute, so it has to be done on a party line vote, and the Democrats have almost no margin for error. And now you have. The president, uh, the Democratic president, uh, with very sharply sinking approval ratings, and he's in a in a, in a bit of a, a political mess right now, and that is going to be entering the mix as on foreign policy. Democrats sort of scurry away to get away from the administration, and how that enters the mix of people's political calculations, I I, I don't see how we get from here to there. And yet again, I'll just reiterate. Things keep moving forward. It looks like it's still happening, and I can't begin to understand how how it couldn't get to the end or what will stop it. But um, I, I've managed to fill up a couple of minutes of space without really saying much of anything at all, and that's all I can contribute. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> so, so, Bill Galston, I will come to you. Um, look, it, it strikes me that the Democrats – believe that they need to get this reconciliation bill passed, that this is a critical part. Maybe it's Pelosi's legacy. She's, you know, perhaps planning to step down as speaker after this. Um, but they seem to believe that, um, that this is an important. So, so here's my question to you: Is it is it a legacy move, or do they think this improves their chances of prevailing in 2022? Because my sense is, if they wanted the purely political move, they would pass the infrastructure bill and hold off on the rest of it. If they wanted to preserve their political viability, what do you think?
1: <laughs> Where to begin? Uh, it is possible. Uh, Pache Damon to explain the incentive structures uh, at work here, Uh, but it's not a short or easy task. Uh, And we have a genuine disagreement within the Democratic Party, both about the merits of policies and the political consequences of policies. Uh, Most of the progressives come from ultra-safe districts. Uh, Their jobs are not in jeopardy, and the people to whom they principally answer stand to be major beneficiaries of what is in the reconciliation bill. Uh, So they have every reason in the world to go like gangbusters. In addition, uh, if you if you have private conversations with many of them, they say that it's by no means clear that under any circumstances they could possibly retain the House of Representatives after the midterms, and therefore there's every incentive in the world to realize as much of their dreams as possible. Uh, And so they, uh, some of them at least, are, are writing off the districts that will make the difference between majority and minority status in January of 2023. Uh, The moderates, for their part, have doubts about the merits and the scope of some of these policies. And in addition, particularly those who hail from suburban suburban areas uh, or from high-tax districts and high-tax states, They believe that signing a reconciliation bill for anything like $3.5 trillion uh, would be one of the most public suicide notes in recent history. Uh, And the battle over this obscure rule rule is a battle for leverage over the process. And the moderates were afraid uh, that if... The reconciliation bill came first, that they would be held hostage, and their votes would be held hostage. and the progressives would threaten that if the moderates withheld support for a3.5 trillion dollar reconciliation bill, the progressives would turn around and torpedo the infrastructure bill, uh, and you know, and then amidst the smoking wreckage, a new political strategy would be developed for early 2022. Uh, bill,
0: bill, wait. Can I interrupt you on that point, though? Because
1: yes. I have a procedural
0: question, and it's this: Yes, um, don't the um, don't the progressives have a weaker hand than the moderates in this sense? the The infrastructure bill was pr- presumably was going to get a bunch of Republican votes, so you would have needed many more progressives to vote against it. Uh, to counteract the number of Republican votes, um, then you would have needed moderates to vote for the um, for the uh, uh,
1: budget bill, right? Well, it gets very complicated, Mona, because you know, I, <laughs> as someone who's participated in some of these conversations, I can tell you uh, that the number of Republicans in the House who were going to vote for the infrastructure bill under a range of circumstances was a moving target. And Republicans of all stripes have been subjected to a ferocious political and media attack from right-wing forces within the Republican Party. Mm. It's been nonstop. It's been intense. And it's having an effect. Uh, okay, fair the, enough. The progressives, uh, the progressives have... Never provided a signed list of members of their caucus who are going who would be willing to withhold their votes. Uh, but they keep on saying that more than half of a hundred-member caucus would be prepared to do so. It would not be easy to come up with the nearly 50 Republican votes that you'd need to counteract that under any circumstances. My over-under number has already been always been substantially below that. So if you put together the the tensions within the Democratic caucus and the struggle for leverage within the caucus, then obscure rules battles suddenly become much more comprehensible. One more point and I'll shut up. The sense in which this is kabuki theater is that there, is, there was never going to be a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. And the problem is that many Democrats on the progressive side simply have not reconciled themselves to that fact. Uh, they have assumed that somehow— uh, The senators who've already stated publicly that they will not support a reconciliation bill at anything like that level didn't mean it or could be rolled, could be subjected to pressure, which is simply not true. So ultimately, if there's going to be any reconciliation bill at all, it would be substantially smaller than the $3.5 trillion budget bill that allows the reconciliation process to get underway. And so... I'm not sure which of Kubler, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of, <laughs> of, of grief they're in, but they're certainly not at the point of acceptance, but at the end of the day, they will have to accept.
0: Oh, boy. Well, Linda, I I guess that's cause for celebration, because if you look at this so-called build back, better plan, I mean, there there seems to have been no judgment applied it was just shovel trillions of dollars out the door right. without you know without sort of weighing um
4: trade-offs at all right. and um, at a time when we're already you know experiencing some inflation and, uh, and you know throwing that kind of money uh out the door and into people's pockets uh it won't be worth what they think it's worth because we're going to be hit by uh by growing inflation look i I hope at the end of the day, and I don't claim to have anything like the insider knowledge that uh, Bill has, but I hope at the end of the day, we see the smaller actual infrastructure bill land on President Biden's desk, um, and that, um, you know, giving that firm deadline of September 27th uh, that Nan- uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, uh, you know, promised them. Um, that that leaves a little wiggle room, I guess, um, to have it pass first. Um, if they don't, you know, end up being able to accomplish what they want on reconciliation, but I'm actually very worried about the reconciliation bill for another reason, and that is, um, as you know, I care a lot about immigration and. The only hope for any kind of uh, immigration measure to go through to protect DREAMers and, and others that we definitely want to keep in the United States, the only hope was going to be packing it on to the reconciliation bill. Certainly not going to see a standalone bill um, pass anytime soon. And next year we're in the election again. And the Republicans have already seen that when they have nothing else to talk about, you know, scare people about the, you know, brown-skinned people who are moving in next door. And so uh, I'm I'm very disheartened that if we don't get uh, something put together that is more reasonable, and, and the president has said, um, that, you know, he's not wedded to that $3.5 trillion dollar uh, price tax. So, um, you know, maybe we will see something on reconciliation, maybe we won't, but I think we'll, the economy uh, needs that infrastructure, the real infrastructure bill passed, and I hope we're able to get it onto President Biden's desk.
0: Um, David, I suspect that you're not as positive on the immigration side of this um as linda but let let me um ask you what i so i am actually fairly well disposed toward increasing the child allowance um uh, but is there anything in this uh that you like
2: um i I want to see this is going to sound like a quaint question from a distant past i want to see how it's paid for um Mm -hmm. I, i think one of the um I have a dark view about what is going on here, which is I I think I see this infrastructure project as not about infrastructure, but about the breakdown of the way Congress works. I think what has happened is a lot of Democrats, especially progressive Democrats, have internalized this theory. When the Republicans have the power, they spend every nickel that can possibly be borrowed from the future on distributions to their favorites, their interest groups, their donors, without any regard for the nation's future. And we have been left in the past to find some way to pay for it and to tidy up after them. Let's stop being the tidier. Let's do unto them as we believe they have done unto us. And let's us spend every dollar that can be borrowed from the future. And um, so without fixing any of the fiscal problems left behind by the incredibly irresponsible Trump administration, we're now going to have a whole new layer of, of fiscal problems. And they don't seem so burdensome right now, because here's another thing that is going to sound like um, a voice from the distant past. We have been used now to money being nearly free, borrowing being nearly free. Mm-hmm. And any change in borrowing being nearly free is in the direction always of becoming even freer, um, to the point mm-hmm. where there have been moments in the past couple of years where sometimes some countries like Germany and Switzerland, they could actually charge people to hold their money. To hold, yeah. Uh, to, 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 but interest rates go go up as well as down. Um, And at at some point, uh, the world of credit is going to conform to Herb Stein's ancient law of economics. If something cannot continue forever, it will stop. Um, Free money will stop. And we are going to be left in a situation where, um, you know, it's not going to be the apocalypse. The United States will always have borrowing capacity, but it's going to get painful and interest rates will start to squeeze. You know, a lot of the story but one last point on this. A lot of the story about what people are unhappy about in their daily lives is the story of how unconstrained costs crush constrained costs. And what I mean by that is this, if you, why, are, why is the cost of college education so high? Um, and part of the answer is, well, colleges are authentically spending more per student. But a big part of the answer is that as Medicaid grew as a share of state budgets in the 1980s, 1990s, in exactly the same proportion as Medicaid grew college spending was crushed. And and, uh, in order to finance Medicaid, the college uh, sector was squeezed and the money then had to come from the students instead. When interest rates begin to rise, it's going to be like that for everything in in the federal budget. Um, So what I hope for, I know this is wishful thinking, is that we need to have some kind of pact uh, between the important interest groups in American society say, you know what, no one's going to go for all the marbles here. We are going to think about the future and we are going to worry about how we pay for the things we want to buy.
0: Oh, it should only be true. All right. Let us now turn to... Oh, Bill, you had a... Do, yeah. you, do you have a quick point? Because Very we're, we're, quick, very okay.
1: quick point. Okay. In fairness to President Biden, he has put a specific proposal on the table that would pay for everything in the reconciliation bill. The problem is not that he hasn't been specific or credible, but a lot of people don't like the idea of raising taxes on upper-income Americans and on corporations and on estates. So this should not be a debate about more deficit spending. And by the way, Speaker Pelosi said explicitly uh, that one of the parameters for the reconciliation bill is that it will be paid for. Uh, The question is, how much of the Biden proposal on revenues will the Congress of the United States be prepared to accept? Okay,
0: we now come to our highlighter, low light of the week. Linda Chavez, start with you.
4: Well, uh, many of us thought that the Supreme Court was uh, on vacation, but apparently they are not totally on vacation because the court handed down... Uh, I not a ruling, but they basically refused uh, to hear an appeal of a district court decision uh, that was brought uh, by uh, the states of Texas and Missouri. Uh, the Biden administration, as you may recall, had got had put an end to the stay in Mexico policy for asylum seekers. That was people who had a credible claim and, and wanted to claim asylum in the United States. Uh, Because of COVID, the uh, Trump administration basically said, no, you can't stay here. You're going to have to go back and wait in Mexico. And tens of thousands of uh, migrants uh, were doing so. But when Biden came in, he started uh, processing some of those asylum claims, and people were, in fact, brought uh, back into the United States, and some were indeed paroled. Well, uh, the state of Texas and Missouri filed suit against that, and they found a Trump-appointed judge uh, who handed down a decision that basically said, "No go. Uh, it's you. You cannot change the Remain in Mexico policy." Uh, I guess what's what's most disheartening about this is that the Supreme Court rarely. Uh, gets involved in foreign policy. And because that Remain in Mexico policy was something that was uh, negotiated between the United States under President Trump and the uh, Mexican government, um, that uh, is going to basically put them back in the position of having to uh, go back and renegotiate it. And so the Supreme Court, with this refusal to hear the appeal, is... Basically, meddling in foreign policy. So that's my low life for the week.
0: Okay. um, Damon Linker. Okay. I promise to
3: to run through these very quickly because I'm going to do something a little unusual and point to four short items that I think illuminated the Afghanistan mess that people can look for. First of all, about 10 days ago, Francis Fukuyama, one of my favorite commentators on all things political and foreign policy had a very nice short item in american purpose titled no decent interval about uh, the fall of afghanistan focusing on Perhaps our error there uh, arising from the bond conference from late fall 2001 all the way from the beginning and the decision made there to try to give Afghanistan a modern centralized state, which he argues uh, probably was never in the offing. Uh, So that's definitely worth uh, reading and pondering. Uh, Secondly, making a similar and related point, our own, at least today, David Frum, has a very good short tweet thread from August 25th that people can find uh, about uh, a related point uh, connected to the Afghan military. And he ends up concluding, I will quote the final item in this tweet thread, quote, the lesson of Afghanistan is not that the U.S. is washed up as a great power. The lesson is that the U.S. is such a great power militarily and economically that it is continually tempted to try hopeless things that nobody else on earth, including China, would ever attempt. So again, I recommend that short tweet thread. Also a tweet thread, uh that i mentioned earlier uh from uh, evo dalder uh, making the case for why we would have needed another surge that also is from uh August 25th, that would have been if we had stayed in Afghanistan. And finally, Matthew Iglesias at his substack uh, had a very provocative piece titled, The National Security Establishment Has Never Cared About Afghanistan. Uh, And that too is very much worth reading and pondering. And that is it. I hope I didn't take much longer than my average recommendation (laughs) at the end of one of these podcasts.
1: No problem at all. Bill Galston. Well, I can keep mine very short, Mona, which I'm sure will please you because I've already mentioned it in our previous conversation. I believe that that op-ed by General Sadat uh, was a con- concise classic of military analysis and moral passion combined. And I would I would hope that every thinking American uh, would read it, although I'm well aware of Adlai Stevenson's uh, assessment of the effect of thinking Americans on the course of our politics. <laughs> Do you want to spell that out? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, it was a famous, famous anecdote, which has the additional merit of being true. Uh, uh, you know, Stevenson gave an extremely eloquent speech at some point in his 1952 presidential campaign And an enthusiastic woman of a certain age rushed up to him and said, oh, governor, governor, that was such a wonderful speech. You'll surely get the votes of every thinking American. And he looked at her with a wintry smile and said, oh, my dear woman, I hope to do much better than that.
0: (laughs) I hope for a majority. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes, yes. It's a great it's a great anecdote. All right. Um. David Frum.
2: Um, Non-Afghanistan topic. Uh, I have been just disheartened to see police unions in cities like New York and Chicago come out so strongly against uh, the requirement that officers sworn to serve and protect the public should be vaccinated against a deadly pandemic. Um, Over the past year and a half, we've had a great fight in the United States over policing and police and and the work done by individual police officers. And Um, Sometimes it's felt a little lonely to be on the defending end of the good work of of police forces and of the integrity and courage and honor of the vast majority of people who serve in blue. Um, So when you get an assignment as simple as this one, get the vax. And unions who represent people in their negotiations over paying conditions should not be converting that job into a job of defending people who are irresponsible, selfish, antisocial, get the vax, and unions should be leading the fight to ensure that their members have the protection that comes from the vax.
0: Thank you. All right. Mine is, to, I would like to uh, do a shout out to the Morning Shots newsletter by Charlie Sykes, uh, who was the guest on last week's uh, uh beg to differ, or not last, but we were off last week, but the week before. But in any event, you all know Charlie. And um, if you are a subscriber to Bulwark Plus, you get his uh, morning newsletter. And it's and it's always well worth reading. But today, I particularly want to draw – this really sang to me uh, because um, he drew attention to the fact that a number of things have happened over the last few days and weeks that suggest there may yet be some sort of accountability in American life again, First, a judge imposed sanctions on the Trump lawyers, Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell, uh, for their absurd and abusive uh, lawsuits, abuse abuse of the legal system. The the House uh, January 6th committee has issued subpoenas uh, to a whole raft of Trump officials. Uh, Rudy Giuliani has had his law license suspended in New York and the District of Columbia, and uh, he and the Kraken lawyers are facing massive uh, libel suits from uh, Dominion voting systems. Um, I would also add that one of the men who participated in the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer just got sentenced to six years in prison. And uh, now I'm going to quote Charlie. He says, in this post-coherence, post-moral world that they have created, meaning that the... the, the uh, Trump people. Um, Nothing matters. More often than not, egregious behavior is actually rewarded. Lies, racism, grifting equals more clicks, higher ratings, more campaign cash. Think of it as a bizarro marketplace where awfulness is the coin of the realm. Marjorie Taylor Greene can indulge in bizarre conspiracy theories and raise millions of dollars in campaign cash. Paul Gosar aligns himself with white nationalists and the GOP shrugs. Steve Bannon rips off the rubes and gets himself a pardon. Donald Trump embraces the most toxic lies about the election and remains the GOP front runner for a second term. And so, because that's the reality that we have been living with for so long, these little green shoots that suggest some accountability for some people sometime is like, is like a, a, the most refreshing spring breeze that you could possibly imagine. All right. Thank you, David Frum, for joining us. Thank you, one and all, for listening. I can be reached at monacharin at thebulwark.com, and we will return next week as every week.